Hello, and welcome to a relatively unexpected bonus episode of Professor Kozlowski Lectures. Um, so I'm a little sick today, or not feeling well, or, you know, trying to figure out whether I am in fact sick or just not feeling well in the more traditional exhausted sense. Um, I took the day off, in short, uh, and as a consequence, my World Wisdom Tradition students need something to do today. Um, I'm not entirely sure if this is the wisest thing for them to be doing. I don't know what the deal is, but this did seem like the, uh, something that I could manage in a fairly short period of time. Um, so we are going to do a lecture from the World Wisdom Traditions class today. Hooray! Um, what this means is that if you are, in fact, one of my online students waiting for the next episode of the Pentateuch series, this is not it, and you are more than happy to just, you know, skip over it. Um, however, I know if several of you were disappointed that we didn't get a full-fledged World Wisdom Traditions lecture series, and I instead did kind of the Cliff's Notes version, you know, instead. Um, in which case, hooray, you get, like, one whole lecture, um, with possibly more to come if this happens again later on in the semester, or in future years, who knows. Um, what it basically comes down to is this subject is kind of like self-contained uh so it works out for everyone involved that this ends up going online uh and not just you know like as a random episode that just seems to follow something that nobody else is paying attention to um in short we are talking about the Feodo. like we are actually at the last section of the Feodo, specifically the myth that plato presents at the end of the Feodo, um and that kind of is really great because it means that we get to talk about something that is kind of new in my world wisdom traditions class while also is kind of self-contained uh for my online students um namely we get to talk about how plato does myth um and how myth connects to this entire discussion uh in the world wisdom traditions class um as my students online are kind of like vaguely aware because i discussed it at some length over the summer um what i want to when i originally sat down to create the world wisdom traditions class i kind of had in the back of my mind this idea that we would be combining um the sort of philosophical traditions that were listed as the prerequisites for this class specifically like greek and roman uh, uh philosophy uh, as well as, you know, Hindu philosophy, Chinese philosophy, uh, Native American philosophy, and the, the uh, uh, Judeo-Christian tradition. Um, in addition to their respective philosophies, I had the idea that we were going to talk about their mythology as well. Um, like, in my mind, whether it kind of makes sense to philosophy professors or not, uh, mythology is an extremely crucial part of understanding the wisdom traditions of a culture. Like, it tends to be foundational to the way that a culture thinks. Um, in addition to all of the classes that I teach in philosophy over at Montclair, I am actually a humanities professor, a mythology specialist, in short. Um, and I am used to talking about mythology from a philosophical standpoint. In fact, it kind of seems weird to me to talk about philosophy without talking about mythology or literature or the storytelling traditions of a particular culture or people. Um, but as I was putting the class together over the summer, I realized that as much as I did, in fact, want to include mythology, it was kind of difficult to sort of separate the mythology from the philosophy in many cases. 
Um, like in Native American literature and tradition, it was kind of a moot point, especially. Like, the mythology was the philosophy. Um, as much as, you know, I had found multiple Native American writers who were sort of approaching the world from a more traditional essay writing, you know, philosophical perspective, uh, writers like Cordovan and Waters, um, the, what I found is if I went any deeper into what they were talking about and into what they understood as the Native American perspective, I would immediately hit Native American mythology. Um, and to that end, I put quite a few of the Native American myths that reflect what Cordova has to say in her book into the class. Like, we'll be starting the Native American unit with, like, legit myths. Um, but this was not quite as clear for many of the other traditions that we were talking about. Like, I have, you know, I, I very obviously included, you know, passages from Genesis and some of the storytelling components of the Judeo-Christian tradition into our discussion of the Judeo-Christian perspective and philosophy. Like, we have next to the likes of Ecclesiastes, stuff from Genesis, stuff from Exodus, as well as the sort of hybrid you know, storytelling, like, parable stuff and life and times of Jesus Christ that we get in the Gospels. Um, but that's kind of more typical. The philosophy and the mythology, at least for Christians, is wrapped up together. You can't separate the one from the other. Like, I could teach Romans instead of the Gospel, but even then, like, we would ultimately be talking about the life of Jesus Christ and whether or not he was real and the historical validity of what's going on and all that. So in the Judeo-Christian tradition, the mythology and the philosophy just come as a package deal. For the Native American tradition, you kind of can't talk about the Native American philosophy without the background in mythology. The trick was, what do I do about Chinese philosophy and what do I do about Hindu philosophy? Because they didn't seem to follow the rules that well. Um, Hindu philosophy very much exists as a separate entity from Hindu mythology. Like, on the one hand, they're not terribly far apart. The Upanishads, which we'll be reading next week, literally are, like, the last couple of chapters of each of the important Vedas, which are, in fact, themselves, like, huge mythological texts. Um, most of the Vedas are hymns and stories and praises to various important gods, and then they usually close with a philosophical chapter like we will find in the Upanishads. Um, the... Uh, Bhagavad Gita, in addition, like is the big final chapter of the Mahabharata, which is basically the Hindu equivalent of something like the Iliad of the Odyssey, a giant, like much longer than both the Iliad and the Odyssey put together, enormous epic poem that concludes with the discussion between you know Vishnu in this particular form as they're surveying the battlefield. Um, so on the one hand, Hindu mythology is very much wrapped up with Hindu philosophy, but the two are striated much more separately, and it is really, really hard to pin down like a particular passage that serves as a logical myth that you need as some kind of prerequisite for the philosophy that's going on. Where Judeo-Christian 
thought, kind of, you can't do one without the other. You're going to get your mythology mixed up with your philosophy and your philosophy mixed up with your mythology, where Native American philosophy is almost entirely derived from Native American mythology. For Hindu philosophy, the relationship is more complicated. It's so, And it's not something that I could necessarily derive just from, you know, a fairly cursory reading or from looking through primary sources, at least not without spending a whole lot of time doing that. You know, I, I kind of wanted to sit down and read the Mahabharata, but to do it properly would take, like, months all by itself. And that for a cursory reading. Like, it's millions of lines. Or at least a hundred thousand. Um, again, like, the it's like four times as long as either the Iliad or the Odyssey, even if at, at its most, you know, truncated. And then when it comes to Chinese mythology, it's a whole nother ballgame entirely. Like, there it really is entirely separated. The three major schools of thought underlying Chinese uh, philosophy, specifically Confucianism, Taoism, and uh, Buddhism, they all kind of come from wildly different traditions, and they really don't connect to Chinese mythology in any formal or sort of codified sense. Like, if you were looking for the book that explains the Chinese notion of ancestor worship, which Confucius is pointing to quite a bit in the Analects, Analects and elsewhere, you're going to be very disappointed. Like, there are definitely murmurings about the various Chinese mythological traditions across multiple Chinese texts. But again, the Chinese have a knack for hiding it. And that's, in fact, part of the goal. Um, like, the one book that I did hear recommended a couple of times was this book called The Classic of Mountain and Mountains and Seas, and it would be virtually unreadable if I tried to include it in my class. It was virtually unreadable for me, just as an amateur scholar of Chinese philosophy, trying to figure out exactly where some of these ideas come from. Um, in short, Chinese philosophy doesn't rely on Chinese mythology, the way that, you know, the mythological and, and philosophical relationships seem to be more interrelated across these other traditions, which left me at quite a quandary. On the one hand, if you asked me before I walked into this, you know, whole class and the, the prep, preparation business, Professor Kozlowski, what is the relationship between philosophy and mythology? I probably would have answered that virtually all philosophy is a derivation of mythological traditions in some way. Because I had experience of Greco-Roman mythology, and that's what it looks like there. And I had some experience of, you know, obviously Judeo-Christianity, and uh, that's how it works there. Even the stuff that I had researched about Native American philosophy, even the stuff that I had researched about Hindu philosophy, seemed to suggest that to some degree the mythology comes first, like the earliest things that we tell ourselves, the earliest written texts we have, are usually mythological in origin, and only later do cultures, societies start to turn their attention to philosophy. But either because so many of these, especially ancient traditions, especially among the Hindus and the, the Chinese, the, mytholo the mythological works were transmitted apparently orally before like they were they were written down and because the philosophy developed at roughly the same time as the written codified versions of the myths it is way more difficult to say for sure that the mythology specifically predates the philosophy it is very difficult to say 
you know, like, as is the case with Plato, that the idea of some sort of, like, codified and regimented notion of how ideas and and how our, our cultural priorities are expressed somehow comes after um, the, the myths that existed in this culture beforehand. On some level, I'm not convinced that philosophy, like, can arise before mythology. I'm still quite sure that mythology predates philosophy, but I can't prove it anymore. By which I mean, I could never prove it, and just some cursory examination makes it very clear to me that it is way more complicated than that, at least when looking at it for, on a world stage. What I want to stress here, though, and what I want to stress in this class going forward, is that they are walking hand in hand. It is very difficult to separate the two in most world cultures, and where those two are separated, it usually seems to be the case that there is some kind of mythological significance to philosophy and some philosophical significance to mythology, but it's really hard to track down some of those basic mythological traditions in traditions other than the ones that we are familiar with in the West. Like, it is super easy for me to say, here are the basic mythological uh, texts underlying Greco-Roman philosophy. Like, I know them cold. It's Hesiod. It's Homer. Like, everybody knows about these texts. Here in the West, they are considered foundational literary works in addition to being foundational mythological works. And in many other traditions, it's the same. Like, again, here in the West, we are, you know, very much coming from the Judeo-Christian mindset. It's very easy to say, yeah, the foundational myths underlying Christianity are Genesis 1 to 3 and the rest of Genesis for that matter, the Exodus story in Exodus, all that stuff. But it is not so easy to do the same, either because I don't know the, the traditions as well, or because they simply don't have a kind of regimented, codified, mythological tradition that underlies the philosophy in something like Hindu or Chinese philosophy. So what I'm saying here is that to talk about wisdom intelligently, to talk about the business of how cultures, how traditions, how humans in general talk about wisdom, mythology needs to be a part of the conversation. Although it isn't necessarily clear from tradition to tradition that there is one clear rule for how mythology is a part of the conversation. It varies in short. But the other, th the other factor that you have to consider is that even the philosophical works that we are looking at are usually framed in the mythological context. As much as it is real hard for me to sort of point to what are the foundational myths in Chinese philosophy, it is real easy for me to say something like Confucius is a mythic figure the way that he is presented in the Analects. So as much as over the summer I was basically kind of beside myself, like, crap, how am I going to teach mythology in this class where it is clearly becoming more complicated than I can manage to sort of, like, encapsulate in my curriculum and more complicated than I can study and, you know, talk about intelligently with only a couple of months' worth of study and research. At the end of the day, what I concluded was, I'm just going to teach the stuff that we usually call philosophy, and because so much of it includes mythology, this conversation is going to happen in and of itself. And this is where I figured we'd have it. Um, obviously, Plato concludes the Phaedo with this myth. 
And this is actually typical of Plato. Like most of his dialogues, or at least most of his later dialogues, most of the dialogues long enough to warrant one, end with a myth. Like, not the Euthyphro, not the, the Crito. The, the apology is kind of complicated because, again, here we have, like, what is philosophy? Oh, it's literally Socrates telling his own story. So is this a myth? Is this philosophy? Once again, we're in that kind of gray area. Here in the Phaedo, though, since this is the text I decided to use to kind of represent Plato's thought and the, the whole Greco-Roman tradition in some respect, it's super obvious that he is working not just with a myth that he has kind of concocted himself for this, uh, this purpose in this dialogue, but also that that myth has a complicated relationship with the Greco-Roman mythological tradition all by itself. So I figured, you know, we were going to get like five sessions into the class. We were going to hit the last day of our study of, of Plato and need to have a conversation about how does mythology relate to philosophy. The exact conversation we're having now and which, you know, for better or worse, ended up being the one that I prepared online. That's part of the reason why I decided to record it because again I thought that this was a pretty good starting place for a lot of the discussion that we haven't yet had in class and that therefore it could be largely transferred out of class without too terribly much trouble um so all that to say we are gonna talk today about mythology as much as we are going to talk about philosophy um which means we need to at the very least sort of go over a little bit of both Greek mythology, like the mythological tradition that Plato himself is most familiar with, as well as what Plato does when he decides to stop everything and give us a myth. Um, so with that in mind, I want to start with the Greek mythological tradition here a little bit. Um, it is obviously a big topic, not one that we're going to be able to cover competently in just one lecture. Um, Again, if you are interested in this, in more discussion about this, I've made a lot of lectures for my mythology class that kind of deal with Plato and mythology and Greek mythology in general. Um, what I basically want to point to here is that Plato is very aware of a Greek mythological tradition. Like, he is clearly interacting with the work of Hesiod and Homer here. Um, this whole discussion of the afterlife that he's kind of presenting to us here at the end of the Phaedo takes a lot of notes from Homer and from Hesiod, but it is not a faithful retelling. And this is fairly typical of Plato, honestly. We're told in the Euthyphro that Socrates, at least part of the reason why he was condemned for, quote, corrupting the youth of Athens, was because he was raising up new gods and not worshipping the old gods. And it is clear from Plato's discussions of various subjects across his dialogues that Plato is similarly disinterested in, uh, in mythology, broadly speaking. On the one hand, he clearly does include many myths in his stories. Those myths are usually out of sync with the way that, you know, Greek mythology usually works. But he also is aware of the influential power of Greek mythology and is therefore very keen to, like poke holes in it and overturn it and even replace it at certain times. But Plato is sneaky about it. He very rarely out and out replaces Greek mythology. Instead, his relationship to it is more building on what is already there, like kind of doing so in his own philosophical framework, in short. When Plato tells a myth, he has a 
purpose behind it. He has an intentionality behind it, something that is usually pretty transparent. Um, he is trying to prove the thing that he has already proved philosophically with something that is more familiar to his readers, i.e. a storytelling convention that basically just says this is how the world works and that happens to dovetail with everything that he has said in the book prior. Now, the two major thinkers that Plato is keenly aware of across his dialogues are Hesiod and Homer. Um, Hesiod is the famous writer of the Theogony and the Works and Days. Um, these are kind of the two foundational mythological texts that deal with especially the creation of the world, uh, the creation of human beings. Like in both the Theogony and the Works and Days, we get the story of Pandora and her box and how like curiosity caused her to open the box, thus releasing all of the evils onto the universe. Um, and how, therefore, it's kind of like women's fault that the world sucks as much as it does. You know, surprise, the Greeks are actually super misogynistic. Um, Homer, on the other hand, you're probably more familiar with. He's the guy who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey, the two big epic poems um, that are kind of like, you know, really important, but also kind of weirdly irrelevant to a lot of Greek mythology. Like, the Iliad doesn't even bother to tell the story of how Troy fell. It's just like, here is, like, a couple of weeks in the middle of the Trojan War, and how Achilles killed the, you know, champion of the Trojans, specifically Hector. Um... Like, on the one hand, the reason why Homer is so revered is more to do with his literary merit than his mythological merit. Like, he is considered a great writer by the Greeks just because his poetry is gorgeous and the, the construction of his storytelling and the characters is all just, like, wonderful. Like, Aristotle has a whole passage in the Poetics where he's like, there's a reason why Homer is considered so much better than all of the other, like... Greek epic poems, like, by a country mile. Um, they admire him for the quality of his work on some level. But don't let that confuse or, or distract you. At the end of the day, Mo or Homer is telling a great deal of mythological work as well. Like, interspersed among his story of that time that Achilles killed Hector and basically guaranteed that the Greeks won the Trojan War, we get a lot of little side stories. Things about, like, the various gods and how they interact with each other. Like, Zeus will drop hints to what has happened in his past, or how his relationship with Hera has matured over the years, or individual instances of, like, how this one hero or this one character, you know, did something really impressive. Um, Nestor especially is kind of like this one really old hero in the Iliad and the Odyssey who will occasionally like stop the story in its track so he can tell like hey there was this one time that I was hanging out with Heracles and Heracles did this really awesome thing and like all of this seems to refer to a mythological tradition that predates Homer for sure but that we get these glimpses of important stories that in fact further enrich our understanding of the way that Greek mythology works. Like, we don't have earlier sources than Homer for many of these myths, in many cases. Homer's the first one to tell them. Um, additionally, Homer is at least the attributed author of a long series of Homeric hymns. Um, like, we today don't necessarily think that Homer wrote both the Iliad and the Odyssey and the, all of the Homeric hymns. There are a lot of things that seem to conflict, either canonically or just, like, stylistically between the two. But at the time, apparently the entire tradition was attributed to Homer. 
So, you know, maybe Homer was a person, maybe Homer was like a whole team of bards, it's hard to say. But at any rate, we get a whole bunch of just straight-up myths from Homer, separate from the Iliad and the Odyssey, separate from the sort of Trojan War epic tradition on the one hand, but also on the other hand, Homer's epic stories include a lot of very straightforward myths. And the Greeks considered Homer and Hesiod to be the foundational writers for basically all of Greek mythology. Like, there are other epic cycles which are considered very much just as important. Like, at the time, there's probably a Heracles and a Theseus epic that are circulating um, that we have since lost, but which were pack full of all of these important myths about these two characters as well as others. Um, but Homer and Hesiod were very much the preeminent writers, the ones that the Athenians especially considered the best mytholo mythological writers in the Greek mythological canon. And this includes Plato. Like, Plato actually writes in the Republic. There's a really important chapter very early on in the Republic. Like, literally, it's chapter two, and Plato is, you know, starting his project of, hey, we're going to talk about what the perfect government looks like. And he gets literally as far as saying, okay, so everybody should be able to work according to their ability and their specialty, i.e., we're going to divide up the labor. We're going to have three classes, one group of people who are basically the working class, who are just doing all of the, like, creative work, and they're, like, making stuff. And then we're going to have a second group of people, and they're responsible for maintaining order. So they're like the cops, but also like the military. And then we've got the third group that's like the ruling class. And they're all philosophers, because of course they are. Um, and as soon as we finish that, like literally the very next move in Plato's giant, awesome, like Western canon defining dialogue, The Republic, is the conversation. Okay, so what do we do about educating the philosophers? Like, how do we, like, teach the ruling class what society is like? And this very quickly turns into a discussion about mythology. Like, Plato says, the way you educate children is by telling them stories, so we have to be real careful about which stories we are telling. And he singles out Hesiod and Homer as the two greatest myth writers of the day, not just because they are great, but because, according to Plato, they are liars. And this is, this is tough. Like, on the one hand, this almost certainly would have been controversial and even possibly a little heretical in the ancient Greek world. Like, for sure, Hesiod and Homer were the most sacred writers of the time, as well as being the most important writers of the time. But it is pretty obvious that the Greeks do not perceive Hesiod and Homer with the same great significance as we see, say, the Bible in the Judeo-Christian tradition. Like, Christians believe the Bible was given to them by God. It is not necessarily directly written by God, like is the case with the Quran. Instead, it's more like God told the writers of the Bible what to say, so it's like a collaborative effort, and like God contributed some of the ideas, but then it's like Paul or Moses or you know, Elijah or Samuel or Jeremiah or Isaiah who end up actually putting words to it and therefore it's inspired by God but not necessarily written by God. But at any rate, the Christians are absolutely convinced this is the, quote, word of God and it is not to be messed with, not to be trifled with. This is as close to capital T truth, as close to capital R revelation as the world gets for Christianity and Judaism. This is not quite the case for Hesiod and Homer. 
like the ancient Greeks seem to regard Hesiod and Homer as being the most knowledgeable people about the way that the universe works. But if Plato's writings are indication, there's a lot of room for flexibility there. Um, and it's not just Plato either. Like, the playwrights feel pretty comfortable just making edits or changes or rearranging events or, or modifying certain characters in order to get their point across. Like, there are kind of two very distinct versions of Helen of Troy, for example, that you'll run across in Greek mythology. On the one hand, Helen of Troy is being depicted as running off with Paris and causing the war that ends the lives of a great number of Greek heroes. In short, many people portray her as a horrible bitch who is responsible for all of this evil and who, you know, is unaware of the consequences of their actions. Like Euripides in the Trojan Women has this actually really moving account of the plight of the women of Troy who are all basically just sitting around waiting to die or be like carried off by certain heroes or turned into slaves and ignominiously like either raped or, you know, like forced into labor for the rest of their lives. And Helen in this in this version is literally just this scheming maniacal monster who just like walks off with Menelaus like she wasn't responsible for basically ending the greatest city that everyone or of the ancient world. Um, on the other hand though, Homer presents Helen very sympathetically. Like, Helen is almost a victim as far as, as Homer is concerned. Anytime you see Helen come up in the Iliad or the Odyssey, she's usually really down on herself. Like, she's depressed to the point of suicide. She's saying things like, I wish I was never born, or I wish my mother had never had me. Like, I wish that I could somehow be held as separate from all of the events that have taken place. Why am I so beautiful that people caught, keep fighting over me in this way? So clearly, like, the character of Helen is something that is malleable in Greek myth. You can tell, tell the story with her as a monster, or you can tell the story with her as sympathetic. You can talk about Helen as though she is, you know, suicidally depressed, or you can talk about Helen as though she is, in fact, engaged in, like, deliberate, you know complicated double espionage ruining the lives of all the people around her. She's a character to be tinkered with, in short. Like, in the same way that, you know, we get excited every time the MCU or, or some kind of new movie about superheroes comes out and we're wondering to ourselves, how are they going to portray our favorite characters? Will Superman look the same way in this movie as he did in, like, the Golden Age comics or the Silver Age comics? Or is this going to be a wildly new interpretation? The same is acceptable in Greek myth. Um, the various literary writers, be it for plays or, you know, for, for like new sort of homegrown epics have a certain amount of flexibility in how they're going to interpret the characters and even the gods in some cases. Um, but, and I want to emphasize this going so far to say that Hesiod and Homer are straight up liars, the way that Plato does in the Republic is bold. Like, very bold. Not necessarily heresy, not necessarily the sort of thing that would have gotten Plato killed, but for sure it would have been controversial, and for sure it represents a perspective towards the myths that probably was pretty uncommon in its time. The myths can be tinkered with, and Plato frequently does. Like, in the Symposium, for example, we get 
Pausinius, one of the characters, talking about how there are these two conflicting stories of Aphrodite's origin. One in Hesiod, where she, like, magically appears after Uranus's junk is cut off and falls into the ocean. And there's one in Homer, where she's just the boilerplate, like, daughter of Zeus and, and one of the other goddesses. And these two stories Pausanias incorporates into his philosophizing. He's like, actually, there are two Aphrodites, and there are two loves. And this seems more typical of what the Greeks like to do. They love to sort of use the, the discrepancies in their mythological tradition to, you know, go on wild flights of fancy about the characters or the, the gods or any number of things. This seems totally okay. Like, I don't think anyone cried foul when they read Plato's Symposium for the first time and said and saw that Pausanias was doing this. Um, however, for Plato to say Hesiod is a liar because he presents the gods as though they are deceptive or manipulative and that that is wrong because the gods should be good and therefore virtuous, that probably would have frustrated some Greeks. Not necessarily because Plato is wrong, but because this is out of sync with the usual versions of the gods that they have in mind, even if at the same time they would prefer Plato's version of events. They would prefer that Zeus be an upstanding citizen instead of a gross philanderer always chasing after people and getting, you know, into grudge matches with other gods and humans. That Zeus would be better to worship, and Plato is right to point that out. Most of the Greeks would probably agree with that. But that's what makes it so complicated and so interesting. For Plato, the myths are broken. He recognizes how powerful they are. That's an important part of what he's talking about here in the Republic. Like, he specifically says, you know, this is the moral foundation of our children's education, and therefore no good society can arise from bad myths in some respect. But at the same time, um, like, he recognizes that the myths that they have are in fact evil are in fact responsible for some of the problems that his society, like his actual society, ancient Greece, has at that particular moment. If the myths say that women are good for nothing, you will have a society that does not value women. And in Plato's Republic, he goes out of his way, especially in Book 5, to stress women are going to be equally contributing to the Republic, the perfect society that he is designing here. Again, myths are responsible for communicating wisdom to Plato. And increasingly, as you read his work, like as time goes on and he gets more sophisticated in the, the sort of construction of his dialogues, you will note that greater and greater emphasis is placed on writing myths of his own. Good myths to counteract the pernicious influence of the likes of Hesiod and Homer. Which makes this kind of the perfect place for us to talk about the relationship between mythology and philosophy, because unlike most of the writers we're going to encounter later on this semester, Plato's doing it intentionally. Plato is keenly aware of the power of myth and is therefore concocting myths to be morally edifying. He is intentionally writing with the moral purpose of the myth in mind first and foremost rather than letting that sort of be the secondary, you know, thing that you take away from it. Like, first and foremost, we're going to talk about the story of the gods. And then, of course, there will be, in fact, moral education in there, but the moral education is kind of like what you get from listening to the story. The story is true. The story is true because I heard it from, you know, my grandfather who heard it from his grandfather, etc., etc. For Plato, 
you don't need the lineage. That's what you can sacrifice. The truth of the myth is, in many ways, not important. And in fact, he goes so far as to say that pretty explicitly in this text. Like, I was kind of extremely excited to see him say this, just because, you know, like, perfectly proved the point that I wanted to make about Plato. If there is a key way to understanding Plato's understanding of myth here... Like, this is on page 150 in our textbook, right around uh, paragraph 114d. Right after Plato delivers his entire elaborate myth of the underworld, which I do want to go over in some detail, but I want us to keep this in mind as we talk about it, he writes, No sensible man would insist that these things are as I have described them. But I think it is fitting for a man to risk the belief, for the risk is a noble one, that this, or something like this, is true about our souls in their dwelling places. Since the soul is evidently immortal, and a man should repeat this to himself as if it were an incantation, which is why I have been prolonging my tale. This is the reason why a man should be of good cheer about of his own soul. If during life he has ignored the pleasures of the body and its ornamentation as of no concern to him, and doing him more harm than good, but has seriously concerned himself with the pleasures of learning, and adorned his soul not with alien but with its own ornaments, namely moderation, righteousness, courage, freedom, and truth, and in that state awaits his journey to the underworld. Like, notice what Socrates is saying here. Literally right after, like, this eight-page myth that we have been introduced to, talking about the underworld and all the rivers of the world and how they sort of, like, pass the dead under the earth and, you know, the punishments and the rewards and all that some of which is based in reality on Greek myth, but very, very loosely, notice that Socrates himself says, this is ridiculous. No sensible man would insist that these things are as I described them, but, he emphasizes, I think it is fitting for a man to risk the belief. This is untrue, he says, but believe it anyway, because believing in it is profitable and it's got enough truth to it that if you do in fact believe it, you will conduct yourself appropriately and guard yourself against whatever comes in the afterlife. This clearly is what Plato believes about mythology. He feels comfortable making shit up, in short. Um, he feels comfortable making shit up because it is convincing. Somehow we are wired to accept stories as, in many ways, more true than plainly stated facts. We want to organize the universe into stories. And if you think about it, and again, this is something that I emphasize to my mythology students, most of the time when we are presented with facts, they are only meaningful to us if we can organize them into a story. Like, as much as our contemporary world would argue that we are not myth-believers, that we are totally separate from myth-believers, we, at the end of the day, don't actually rely on facts as much as you might think. Like, if I asked you, what is the origin of the universe, at least for the, you know, average secular American today, you would probably give me something along the lines of the Big Bang as your answer. Like, okay, so once upon a time, many, many, many years ago, there was a giant explosion, and that explosion flung all of the matter that exists into the universe, and it has since been collecting into planets and stars and, you know, asteroids and comets and gas clouds and any number of other things, but basically at the end of the day, it is an explosion that caused all this. Now, that's a story. 
Like, admittedly, it is rooted in scientific observation. It's rooted in facts. It's rooted in, you know, measurements about, like, the relative speed of various bodies moving away from what is apparent, apparently a central point. But your relationship to it has very little to do with the facts. Like, every time I teach this at Montclair, I will say to my students, okay, you know, you're all here for your gen ed requirements. Many of you are, in fact, science majors. Many of you are very familiar with the techno technology underlying this stuff. Could you, if I asked you, produce even the data that scientists use to argue the existence of the Big Bang? And the answer is almost always no. No one in my class among 70 students can do that. But we all know the story. In our minds, this is less a matter of scientific data, less a matter of, you know, corroborated facts, less a matter of us stringing together all of the details that science has given to us, all of the observations that science has basically persuaded us to believe in, and instead they latch onto the story. Once upon a time, many, many years ago, there was a giant explosion in space, and that produced the universe we have. There's nothing resembling fact there. Not in the sense of concrete data, not in the sense of numerical observations or, you know, evidences provided by radio telescopes or satellites or, you know, what have you. All we have there is a story, a once upon a time in the very distant past story. And in that respect, most of what we think about science, most of what we argue science tells us is usually give, delivered to us in the form of either a metaphor or a story. And a good scientist is aware of this. A good scientist is keenly aware of this and is very careful to sort of structure their metaphors in such a way that simultaneously it is easily digestible and therefore easily repeatable, but at the same time not out of sync with scientific teaching. Those myths are, in fact, carefully constructed by scientists to reflect both the truth that they have observed, the rough data, the raw information that they have, in fact, gleaned in order to put this picture together, while also being, in some way, something that the rest of us can accept and, you know, like, without a whole lot of question or error. In this respect, there is not that much difference between the way that Plato and his fellow Greeks related to the priests of his day and the way that we, the average Joe trying to understand and make our way through the universe, respects the scientists who we trust with all of that information. We are told, we are encouraged to think that if, in fact, we had the same amount of training and the same intelligence and the same opportunities and the same equipment, that we could find the exact same data, repeat the experiments that the scientists have, have repeated, and come to the same conclusions. But we don't. The reasoning behind our myths has changed. But the myths, the fundamental way that we process reality, has not. Plato is just as right about us and how we latch onto stories and metaphors and, you know, the, the sort of like, like causal relationships that underlie the universe just or now as he was like thousands of years ago when he was talking about his own people. We are not in any way more or less gullible than the ancient Greeks in short. 
we still populate our world and our understanding of that world with stories, with myths. We still believe things, not necessarily because they are in some way capital T true or believable, but because they make sense to us, they work according to the way that our minds process information, and importantly, because it is useful to do so. Now, the next step of this process might be to ask the question, so what does the myth of the Big Bang tell us? What does this world, as presented to us in this way, suggest? And you'll notice that Plato actually has a bit of an answer to that as well. The scientific version of the universe very importantly emphasizes that there is no afterlife. And notice that Plato leads his discussion of the, the myth and the Phaedo with that observation. Like, notice, he has literally, like, basically con conducted the dialogue up until this point, arguing multiple different times and multiple different ways for the immortality of the soul. Like, that's literally the, the place that he starts by talking about how, like, philosophers are, at the end of the day, preparing their souls for death, and how this is, in fact, a good thing, even though philosophers aren't supposed to commit suicide. He follows that up by proving that the soul has, in fact, come from some kind of pre living state with the whole discussion of recollection and then goes ahead and disproves Simeus's and Kibis Kiba's arguments about like what if the soul isn't actually as immortal as you think what if the soul like dies after a certain amount of time or what if the soul is just a harmony of the different parts of the body and therefore is extinguished at the same time the body is extinguished Plato addresses all of these issues and ultimately like finishes with this really potent argument to Kibis about, hey, the soul is the principle of life in our bodies, and as the principle of life, it, it will not tolerate the presence of death, and it is therefore deathless. He has literally concluded his argument by saying that the soul must be immortal, must be deathless, that is the nature of souls. And then to back that up, like, literally as he starts his myth, he says, it is right to think then, gentlemen, that if the soul is immortal, it requires our care not only for the time we call our life, but for the sake of all time, and that one is in terrible danger if one does not give it that care. Note he says, 107c, If death were escaped from everything, it would be a great boon to the wicked, to get rid of the body and of their wickedness together with the soul. But now that the soul appears to be immortal, there is no escape from evil or salvation for it, except by becoming as good and wise as possible. For the soul goes to the underworld possessing nothing but its education and upbringing, which are said to bring the greatest benefit or harm to the dead right at the beginning of the journey yonder. Note that line there. If death were escaped from everything, he says, it would be a great boon to the wicked to get rid of the body and of their wickedness together with their soul. Plato is stressing here the myth that he has concocted, the one that talks about the immortality of the soul, specifically emphasizes the rewards to the good and the punishments to the wicked. It is a myth, in short, that communicates the importance and the value of virtue. It is a myth that, as Plato would have pointed out in the Republic, makes people virtuous if they believe it. That's why, even if it is not technically true, even if it is implausible, it is worth believing anyway for Plato. Myths are indifferent to the reality of truth or untruth. 
Instead, they are exceptionally devoted to the reality of good versus evil. And if we sort of bounce that back against that secular scientific notion of the universe, that myth, that myth that we are told in the Big Bang, notice that this is a myth that tells us we die and that's it. That there is no life after death and therefore no advantage to being good. On some level, if our world is fundamentally secular in this way, if there is no advantage to goodness, we are essentially promulgating a myth that Plato would consider vicious, that makes us worse people. Now, on some level, I bet the scientists have a fairly similar attitude towards the Big Bang Theory as Plato does to the myth that he's describing here. It doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. It is, at the very least, the closest explanation we have for the origins of the universe, given the data we have. Since scientists do not want to weigh in on the subject of does God exist or not, because God is, by definition, an unobservable being, and science is, by definition, something concerned only with what you can derive from observation, most good scientists will argue they don't have any, anything to say about God. Like, it is irrelevant to their pursuits. Like, I'm fond of quoting Stephen Hawking for saying that there is no need to believe in God after the findings of science, but that's as far as he's willing to go. Now, does that mean that I am against the myth of the Big Bang? Not necessarily, but I would argue that it, as a myth, it does incline us to bad behavior in some ways. Now, we might have a more complicated conversation about something like the myth, quote, of, say, global warming. Like, notice that science has given us a story for the, or the explanation of why the universe, or the world, uh, seems to be heating up lately. Why the temperature seems to be rapidly fluctuating, and why the world is subject to great upheavals of nature, and, you know, why our climate seems to be turning against us in some way. And this, you'll notice, does have a, like, re responsibility attached to it, a virtue attached to it. This myth, even if it is just a myth, is designed to make us better stewards of the environment, unsuccessful though it may have been. But notice too that this is a myth that science has edited over the years. Like back in the 90s when we used to talk about environmentalism, we talked about not climate change, but global warming. We talked about how gradually every year the, the temperature of the earth was rising by a percentage of a degree, and that if it got high enough, this could have catastrophic consequences for the world around us. Now, this was a pretty easy myth to argue against, though. Like, Republican legislators and people who were against this environmental policy argued very easily that, hey, the winters are actually getting super cold lately, so there's no way that the world is actually heating up. Good grief, everyone. Stop making such a big deal about this. So scientists edited their myth for the purposes of making it both more accurate to our experience, but also emphasizing, more importantly, our effect on the world and how we are therefore responsible to change it. From global warming, we came to climate change. And the emphasis that the, uh, the fluctuations in our climate are going to become wilder in every direction, rather than just getting warmer and warmer and warmer and like uh, to the point that you know all of the bodies of water dry up and basically everything turns into one featureless desert that's a inaccurate according to more contemporary scientific findings but it is also a more durable myth 
one that a story that we can believe without directly contradicting our direct experiences, especially in places where there were especially severe winters or dramatic like typhoons or other rapid fluctuations in the weather that did not immediately yield dry, hot conditions. This is responsible myth-making, in short. And like I said, our scientists are very conscious of it. Plato, too, would probably accept the climate change myth more readily than he would accept the Big Bang myth, if only because it would more readily point to a virtue, a good behavior, that Plato would be encouraging us to accept. This, in short, is wisdom. This is meaningful to us in our own lives, where our understanding of the Big Bang might actually yield a more cavalier, more vicious attitude, because who cares what evil we do if our souls are ultimately doomed to be just scattered and destroyed the way that the matter of the universe is scattered and destroyed in this cosmic and indifferent uh, way. Now, Plato, you'll notice, structures his Phaedo myth in some pretty strange ways at first glance. Like, as much as, you know, we are dealing with a myth here and Plato is doing some really interesting things with Greek mythology, this is honestly a pretty tough read. Like, we lead off with a discussion of the spirits and how, like, there are these guardian spirits that usher, you know, dead people into the underworld, which is itself kind of, you know, within the Greek tradition, but not necessarily the mainline Greek tradition. As far as I can tell, the Greeks have a number of conflicting and complicated attitudes about death and the afterlife. Um, and while the, the sort of mainline mythological attitude is that Hermes conducts all dead souls to Hades, um, most of the practices, like the archaeological findings, suggest that the Greeks think it's more complicated than that. That, in fact, um, they tend to, like, go to grave sites and, and like believe that there are souls that are kind of lingering there and that they need to be taken care of. And, you know, it's actually more comparable to the Chinese practice of ancestor worship, where, like, you go to the grave to, to visit your grand, great-grandfathers and stuff and petition them for help and, and all that sort of thing. Um, so as a consequence, as much as, like, Plato is pointing to a guardian spirit tradition that doesn't seem in line with Homer or Hesiod or, or the mythological view that we are more accustomed to in Greek mythology, this is hardly a point against it. Um, it's more likely that Plato is pointing to more contemporary traditions, especially those connected to the, the afterlife mystery cults, um, than is, you know, something that we necessarily read in the great Greek myth writers. Um... But what's obviously more prominent about this whole discussion is the geography lecture that Plato then goes on to give us. Um, specifically, we get this story about, like, there being four rivers, first Oceanus, which that definitely tracks with Greek mythology. Like, there is this giant river on, that goes around the entire Earth, which you'll note that Plato says it's spherical. Like, let no one tell you that nobody thought the Earth was round before Columbus. Um, the Greeks were very convinced that the Earth was round and that it was spherical because that was the most perfect shape, and therefore, obviously, we would live on the most perfect shape. The reasoning is bad, and it is not knowledge by any extent of the imagination, but everyone kind of guessed at the fact that the world was round for a long time. Um, we have Oceanus going around the Earth. This is the river that, like, surrounds all of the land. But we also have the Acheron, 
which is in fact reported in the Odyssey and the relationship between the Acheron and, and the, the Underworld, like how it flows into Tartarus, but also like apparently flows out of Tartarus. This is all like directly from the Odyssey, apparently. Um, like it's the, it's very thinly sketched in the Odyssey. It's not nearly as elaborate as, as Plato makes it out here. Um, but it is very clearly the case, like Circe literally tells Odysseus in, in Odyssey 10, like you can just get on the Acheron and the Acheron will take you directly to the underworld where you can consult with the spirit of Tiresias. Um, like it'll take you to Styx and Cocytus in, in much the same way that we see here. Um, even with like the inclusion of the, the Pyroflegathon, which is just an awesome name for a river. Um, but notice that what Plato is emphasizing is less a matter of, like, actual geographical detail, although he almost certainly thinks that, like, it, it does dovetail with what Odysseus has to say, whether, that, whether or not that is part of what he thinks is unbelievable about this myth. Um, but he also emphasizes that the reason why you are des describing the rivers in this way is because we are emphasizing the oscillation, the movement in and out of the world. Um, that the underworld is something that you not just pass into, but pass out of. Um, and notice that this construction of the universe is also right alongside his description of, like, we are actually living in the air, but the air is kind of like a mist that dwells in the hollows of the earth, and that we are essentially living in an earth that is, in fact, spherical, but we are actually under the surface, and that the air is like the sea to those who are actually sitting on the surface of the earth. Like, he has this pretty elaborate description where it's like, okay, so there is the you know, earth itself and the seas over the earth, you know, nestled in the hollows. And we go up to the seashore expecting that like the earth goes deeper than, than the actual sea does. But the air that we are dwelling in is in fact itself corrupt and dense and kind of not what the actual surface of the earth really is. Instead, the surface of the earth is the ether that there is this heaven above us and that the earth as a whole is both air and water and earth all sort of like packed together in this Swiss cheese looking ball and that the air comes up to the surface of the earth in much the same way that the water comes up to the surface of the land in our experience but on the real surface of the earth above the air these people dwell who are in fact directly in contact with the ether, the heavens, the, you know, mysterious fluid or, like, pure entity that is so perfect and, and so lightweight and, and, like, even less dense than the air itself, and that the, on the surface people dwell in that rarefied atmosphere, that, like, air of air, and that's the people who have the most knowledge, the people who are living the most perfect lives, the people who, in fact, see reality for what it is. They are the ones who have direct access to the gods, like Plato describes, that the gods actually live on the surface of the earth, in the temples and the groves that uh, the people make for them. So, in short, there we are a subhuman race in, in a very real sense for Plato. We dwell in the air the way that fish dwell in the sea, and that that air is in fact a corrupt and corrupting influence on everything around us. The stuff we see is viewed dimly through the medium of this air, which is again gross and affecting. 
again, like being able to see underwater is very difficult and kind of corrupts everything that we touch. Um, our goal then, when we die, is we are swept around by the Acheron. And if, in fact, we've lived, like, eh, mediocre lives, it just kind of, like, flushes us through a, a pretty basic form of punishment um, or, you know, rewards us for whatever lives we've led, but then it just flushes us right back up onto the surface. Like, our souls once again, like reanimate some kind of body and we have to live the whole business of living in this gross air bit like uh, stuff for another lifetime before the entire cycle repeats if you're evil on the other hand you have to go into tartarus like you literally get flushed down into tartarus where you have to dwell for a year and then every successive year you have to like come out of tartarus petition the people that you have wronged to let you go to basically like forgive you and if they will then you get to you know live again and go through the entire like acheron life cycle again but if they refuse you get flushed back down into tartarus and you have to live there for another year until hopefully they'll let you go the next time in short you get aptly punished for your crimes everything that you do that is evil for plato is in fact punished in the afterlife and this is really different from the way that the greek afterlife is usually perceived like, as much as, yes, the geography of the various rivers flowing into and out of Hades is, for the most part, consistent with the way that Odysseus is, dis is talking about it in the Odyssey chapters 10 and 11, the idea of the afterlife being a place of punishment on the one hand and reward on the other is not. Like, when, in fact, Odysseus meets Achilles in the Odyssey... He's like, hey, you lived a really good life. You were a great, strong hero. You died valiantly, and you died with great honor. Surely you are the ruler of the Elysian Fields. You are living the best possible life that you can live in the underworld. And Achilles responds with, don't try to sell me on death. It's miserable down here. Like, there is no good, there is no bad. I would give up everything I have in the underworld in a second if it just meant being alive again. For Homer, death is purposeless. Like, these shades are forced to watch the exploits of human beings utterly impotently. Like, Achilles is given honor among the dead, but that honor is meaningless and empty. He would much rather be engaged with the life of his family. He is interested in the, you know, exploits of his son Neoptolemus. And he, like, grills Odysseus about what his son has been doing because Achilles can no longer see what happens or see or help his family anymore. For Homer and for most of the Greek myths we encounter, the underworld is flatly miserable. Like... There are people who do get tormented, who do get tortured, like Sisyphus or, or Ixion or Tantalus, like receiving that sort of torture where Sisyphus has to like roll the boulder up the mountain, but then it rolls all the way back down. He has to do this over and over again for infinity. Notice that the emphasis there, as much as it is torment and eternal torment at that, it is banal, boring, miserable torment. It is the absurdity of Camus, not the hell of uh, the Judeo-Christian mindset. What Plato is describing here is actually way closer to Christianity. There is a clear reward system for people who do good and a clear like punishment system for people who do evil. But the goal here, 
the actual reason why Socrates is living the life of the spirit, of the intellect, the reason why he forsakes all of, you know, the, the bodily pleasures is because in this myth, if you live that kind of contemplative life, you break out of the system. You ascend beyond the world of air. And the river that actually takes you, takes you up to the surface where you will now dwell with the people who dwell in ether, where you will dwell with the gods themselves, where you will be able to have access to the world as it is and not the one that is discolored or corrupted by our living in the air. In short, you become like the best version of a human being. And he even says positively that if you have in fact stripped yourself of all of your bodily desires, you will ultimately live without a body altogether. Like you're not even going to have a body when you in fact hit the surface. You will just be pure spirit, which according to Plato and everything that we've talked about in this dialogue so far very clearly means you will have access to firsthand knowledge without the corrupting influence of your physical body bringing it down. This is good news for Plato. You get to be freed of everything that holds you back from perfect contemplation, for perfect behavior, and perfect understanding of the world around you. As much as this is more parallel with the Judeo-Christian version of Havel in Heaven, honestly, this is way closer in sort of its explanation to the Hindu notion of enlightenment. This is freedom from samsara in a very real sense. Freedom from the world of emotion and like temporary pleasure. Freedom from the corrupting influence of the world around us. This is what Plato aspires to. This is what Socrates prescribes for the philosophers around him. This is what we should be looking for. And this is the reward for a life lived in contemplation. That's what Plato is stressing here. That's the myth that Plato tells. And the obvious moral here is that you, like Socrates, should live the contemplative life, should forsake bodily physical pleasures, because they are in fact bringing you down and not up. Now, this could very much be connected to the big myth that is told in the... the uh, last chapter of the Republic as well, the famous myth of air in Republic of Book 10, which also emphasizes that life is about reincarnation. Like it literally gives us this, this myth where like Odysseus is standing ready to be judged. And because he is, you know, a great hero and because he has done good works in his life, he basically gets his pick. Like, where do you want to live in your next life? And where, and, you know, the, the whole emphasis that Plato has had throughout the Republic about, like, living the correct life and living according to, you know, the appropriate, like, your appropriate station in life, living justly in short, um... Odysseus very much says, like, I'd rather, you know, live a fairly common life than go ahead and be a hero and thus have all of this responsibility piled on my shoulders. Um, like, I would rather give up the, the opportunity to be powerful because at the end of the day, that would make me miserable, which itself ties back to the whole Ring of Gyges myth that Plato has brought up before. Um, what I want to stress here is that this idea of reincarnation is fairly consistent across Platonic philosophy. It is, though, though we should notice, not consistent with the Greco-Roman philosophical tradition as a rule. This is unusual. 
And at least part of the reason why I wanted to teach the Feodo and not, say, the Euthyphro or any of the other, like, platonic texts that we could be using here is because it does, in fact, connect to our next unit pretty deeply. Like, we can pretty easily talk about Plato in the context of the, the Hindu perspective on reincarnation. And we're going to see a lot of references to that cycle of life and death in the Upanishads as well as in uh, the Dhammapada. Um, so that for sure is, you know, like the perspective that I want you to be thinking about as we move into these other texts and other traditions. Um, but the other thing that I want to sort of stress here is this idea of belief and selective belief for that matter. Because that too is going to be one that we're very much wrestling with for the rest of the semester. This idea that there are truths that are inaccessible to us, but it is wise to believe them anyway. This idea of faith as an important motivating principle for our behavior is also going to haunt us quite a bit. Again, this is world wisdom traditions. We are not necessarily dealing with facts or capital T truth in the sense of facts. We are dealing with capital T truth in the sense of what is good for us. What is the purpose that we are trying to accomplish? This is wisdom separated from science, and science itself cannot give us wisdom. It is not equipped to do that. It has to bend over backwards in order to get anywhere near wisdom. And remember, for Plato and for most of the writers we're talking about in this class, the scientific data that we have, they do not have access to. This is literally thousands of years before, you know, the scientific method was even conjured up by the likes of Galileo or Descartes or, or any of the thinkers in the 17th century. As much as many Arabic philosophers have tinkered with something basically approximating the scientific method, even that is a thousand years after most of the texts that we'll be reading in here. This is not to say that, like, these people needed science. If anything, I would argue the wisdom of these texts still kind of is greater and more valuable to us than scientific truth in many ways. But what I want to stress is that for Plato and these thinkers, they have access to a very important principle that science does not admit of, that idea that we can believe whatever we want Science is very naive, very young in thinking that by giving us facts, we will believe those facts and that those facts are the best things to believe. And science has made some problems as a consequence. You know, like we talked literally last week in my uh, World Wisdom Traditions class about the Oppenheimer problem, about what do you do when science gives you a truth that is potentially dangerous, potentially hazardous, something that is actively destructive in certain cases. Um, what do you do when science delivers into your hands a scientific development that can, in fact, destroy ourselves? What do you do with an atom bomb, in short? The great advantage of the wisdom that we are dealing with in this class is that it does not have that kind of power. In some ways, it is more powerful. We are, in fact, dealing with convictions, myths, traditions that many millions of people will hold dear to their hearts. But what it won't do is utterly destroy any possibility of human life on this planet. Like, we will essentially get to science through the likes of Greco-Roman philosophy, through the likes of Judeo-Christian religion in many ways. But these traditions are moral in a way that science assumes that it is not, and perhaps assumes incorrectly. All myth, 
all storytelling, all language is itself rooted in the worlds of politics, rooted in the world of sexuality, rooted in the world of myth. We cannot help that. Anytime that we hear a story, no matter how based in fact it actually is, we will derive morality from it. We will change our lives to fit the model of the universe that we are presented with as truth. And consequently, it, these texts that we are reading in this class have been held dear for so long, not necessarily because they're factual. Even some of their, the adherents of these traditions believe that many of these texts are full of nonsense. They are believed because it is useful to believe them, because it is advantageous to us to hold these things true, or as Plato says, these things or something very much like them. These are the texts that encourage us with great urgency to be good, to practice virtue, to take care for our eternal souls. And as much as, you know, contemporary science has given us a great amount of technology, if anything, I suspect that that technology has accompanied a certain amount of moral degradation. Not science's fault, necessarily. But at the same time as science was growing ascendant, a lack of faith in these moral traditions has been occurring. And I am not going to say, like, oh, the world is going to crap because people don't believe in Christianity anymore. That's not what I'm after. What, I'll, what I want you to notice is that all of these traditions, all of them, including the Native American tradition, including the Chinese tradition, they are all, to a fault, relentlessly moral. And as much as morality is not enjoying a very high day in court these days, I believe that is the key why the world around us seems to be less and less interested in the responsibility it takes for its actions. That's why politicians today do not care if they are caught in scandal, because we do not care either. If we are not moral, if the things that we believe do not urge us to morality, then we will in all likelihood forsake morality. But Plato? Plato is relentlessly moral. Plato is encouraging morality on a people who he thinks are following myths that are by their very nature immoral. And thus, in some way, I suspect I'm doing the same. Secular capitalist morality tells us to take whatever we can get. These myths, these stories, these philosophies urge us to tend our souls, to be responsible for our actions, to worry about the effects of our actions on others and how that will in fact damage ourselves. On some level, we are engaging in the kind of, like, two-handed morality that Plato actually cautions against in much of this text. Like, as much as Socrates is like, I don't understand a philosophy that says, you know, you are smaller because of your tallness, or you are taller because of your smallness. Like, he is very grumpy about any system that proposes to, you know, use opposites to same, come to the same conclusion. At the same time he is kind of suggesting a world that is rooted in these opposites. He is suggesting that we should, in fact, be selfless for selfish reasons, that the world is designed in such a way that we will be rewarded if we are nice to people and we, that we will be punished if we are bad to people. And again, most of the systems we encounter in this lecture series are going to say something similar. Like, Christianity is kind of the obvious example here. If you are good, you go to heaven. If you are bad, you go to hell. Though obviously that is a gross oversimplification of Christian morality. 
Um, what I want to stress is that this basic relationship, goodness is rewarded after death, this is going to be the foundation of much of what is considered wisdom, even if there is no basis in reality for it. Reality is kind of of secondary consequence to us, though. As Plato notices, what we care about isn't necessarily the facts, it's the story. The story is able to be modified. Plato doesn't seem to care too much about whether or not his myth is true. Instead, he cares about whether his myth is right. And that, that's going to be a perspective that a lot of others share across these readings and across this class. And with that in mind, we should definitely look at the final scene here. Obviously, after Socrates finishes narrating the myth, this dialogue closes with his actual death. And we get just these fairly haunting images. Like, as much as the Phaedo is kind of a difficult text, and I've struggled with it quite a bit as we've been reading it in our class, um, as much as I've been, like, frustrated by certain passages, and I think that it's actually fairly inelegant as many platonic dialogues go, what I cannot deny, and what I have never been able to deny, is how potent the image of Socrates getting ready for death actually is here. That on the one hand, we've got the testimony of the guard who comes in, he like openly weeps. Like the guard has, you know, been hated by so many of the other prisoners because he is the guy who delivers the, the mechanism of death to them. But here's Socrates who's like actively thanking him for the poison that he's about to drink. And the guard is like, you are by far the most decent, like reasonable and knowledgeable person that I've ever met. And he like just openly cries. The fact that all of Socrates's friends are like weeping, not because they are sad for Socrates, but as Phaedo says, because they are sad for themselves to lose Socrates. Like, he has brought them so much wisdom, brought them so much goodness, and now he is being taken away from them, admittedly by his own hand. They're just legitimately upset for it. And then finally, the guy comes, and he's like, okay, Socrates, here's the poison. And everyone's like, well, you don't have to drink it right away. Like, usually people hang out for a while, and they party for a while, and it's like hours into the night, and finally they drink the poison, and then they die. And Socrates is like, guys, I don't want to wait around. Like, I'm eager for this transition. I am eager to go to death, to, you know, follow the, the myth that he has just talked about, for his soul to be unencumbered by the body. And they're like, what do we do with your body? What do you, where should we bury you? And he's like, I don't care. You act like that's me, but it's not anymore. Like, as soon as I'm dead, my soul will be gone. I'm going to be somewhere far away. I don't care what you do with a body. And then he does, in fact, drink it. And we get that absolutely haunting last message, you know, Crito, sacrifice a cock for, to Asclepius for me, as though he is being healed in death. That's heavy, potent stuff. And I don't think it's a mistake. I don't think it's unintentional. Like, Plato's too canny a writer not to pick up on the fact that this, this is myth. Like, as much as Socrates was a real person, as much as Socrates almost certainly, you know, did half the stuff that we are, are describing here in this, in this uh, dialogue, as much as Socrates almost certainly was the guy who went around asking questions and being a pest and the gadfly of Athens and, you know, going around being obnoxious and, and like asking, you know, people impertinent questions and corrupting the youth of Athens, as much as he was all of those things, 
he is also a mythic figure. Like Jesus, like Vishnu, like Confucius, the world of myth and the world of history are colliding here. And you'll note, like, early on in the dialogue, Plato drops a little hint, like, when Phaedo is listing everyone who is there at Socrates' bedside as he is getting ready to die, Plato notes that he himself was not there, that he was sick. Like, Phaedo specifically says, I don't think Plato was there, he was sick. And so we're basically told, like, this is not first-hand experience. Plato doesn't necessarily know what the exact thing Socrates said at the moment of his death was. It is presumably only hearsay. But it doesn't matter, because it's worth believing in for Plato. Many scholars have spent a lot of time asking whether or not the Socrates that Plato presents here in these dialogues is in fact true to the image of the original Socrates. Does the Socrates of, of Platonic dialogues actually say what Socrates' own philosophy was? Or is Plato putting his own philosophy into Socrates' mouth? Was Socrates really the heroic, like, temperate, virtuous person that Plato presents him as? Or was he in fact the, the monster who betrayed the Athenian people that the historians usually make him out to be. Who was this person? Is he, in fact, what the guy who Plato presents? But the fact is, it doesn't matter. Whether or not it's true, it is useful to believe it. Socrates, the hero, is a worthwhile myth for us to take seriously. We, too, can aspire, and perhaps should aspire, to be the man or the woman or the person who faces death confidently, who is good and virtuous, who is conscientious, who is constantly seeking reason, truthfulness, and goodness, and who happily goes to death knowing that whatever the universe might look like, whatever reality we might live in, that that virtue, that goodness will be rewarded. That the universe we live in is not some cold, meaningless, expanding place where everything just dies purposelessly, but instead is a good, just place where being a decent person is rewarded and where being wicked is appropriately punished. That's a good myth to believe, in short. It is wisdom in a way that science can't be wise. This is why I spend my time studying philosophy, in short. I find this stuff incredibly powerful, incredibly meaningful. Socrates is who I want to be, in the same way that I want to be Confucius and Buddha and Jesus. Like, I'm not saying that they are all, you know, unilaterally something that you can package into a single entity, but they are emphasizing many of the same virtues, many of the same qualities virtues and qualities I want to practice in my own life. When I die, which I will, I hope that my students will say of me what these people are saying of Socrates, that he was good, that he taught them a great deal, that he made them better people in short. And while I'm not going to be, hopefully, too upset with my own death, I hope that I will have created a better place, a left the world better than I found it in some respect. Not because I think that I will necessarily be rewarded, though I do, but because that's a good thing in itself to do, 
to believe. I would rather have that legacy than the legacy of, well, he lived a pretty fun life and then he died and, eh, you know, it's kind of hard to say whether he really helped or hindered the entire human experiment. No. I want that legacy. I want that life. And if that means there are some things that I have to give up as far as, you know, pure pleasure during my life, that's a sacrifice I'm absolutely willing to pay. And at the end of the day, if I find out I'm wrong, like if I in fact die and nothing happens and I have consciousness enough to be aware of the fact that nothing happens, I'm pretty sure I'll still have made the right choice. Like, I'm not going to be sitting there thinking, dang, if only I had had more sex. That's, that's what I definitely should have been doing. Like, it would have been so much more fun. I really don't think that's where I'm going to be at. At the end of the day, the life that Socrates lives, even if it isn't rewarded with some kind of powerful afterlife, with some kind of, you know, pleasure or, or like, es elevation, some kind of enlightenment, some kind of, you know, second reality, even if that's not the case, being good was something worth doing. Helping people, making them happy, teaching them to live their lives, to also seek out the business of making other people happy, I can't help but think that that was the right thing to do. Even if I did it imperfectly, even if I didn't get my point across, even if I'm saying this and you weren't believing me. At the end of the day, as Socrates and Plato and Aristotle would all emphasize, the unexamined life is not worth living. I have had much more pleasure, much more beauty in my life than I suspect I would if I was not looking for it this devotedly. There are things I appreciate that I feel others do not, and it makes me actively sad, both because I'm worried that some of those things are going to go away, that people who do not care about Plato or about, you know, Homer or about Christianity will ultimately, like, let these things expire in the story of human history, but also because people are living the, their lives without these things, trying to find joy and pleasure from really superficial trash, stuff that I have do not value and do not regard as important or meaningful at all. That's something I want to fix even if it's not my business to fix it. If I can show why I believe what I believe, if I can demonstrate the truth that Socrates demonstrates, the, like, goodness of virtue, the beauty of virtue, if I can get my students to wonder if maybe that is worth seeking, that's worthwhile to me. That's what this is all about. And I believe that not necessarily because I see the evidence in the world around me, but because it is a myth worth believing in. Because it's not necessarily something that can be proved or disproved. But given the choice between one unprovable myth that says that the world is empty and meaningless and we are all going to die and it will all be, you know, not worth anything... And an equally unprovable myth that says it is meaningful and it will, in fact, be, you know, worth something. To me, there's an obvious choice. Why would you pick the one that makes you miserable? Why would you pick the one that makes the world potentially darker? 
why not make Pascal's wager and say to yourself, well, the worst I lose out on is a little bit of life experience if, in fact, I follow Christianity or if I follow the wisdom of Plato or if I follow the wisdom of Buddha. If the worst I lose out on is a little bit of, you know, worldly pleasure, passing, temporal, and superficial, but potentially could gain any number of great boons, enlightenment or heaven or salvation or just some kind of eternal goodness, why wouldn't I be willing to risk a little bit of physical pleasure for that potential benefit? It is a very pragmatic look, pa Pascal's wager. Be good because you might win out and there's no harm in being wrong about it. That's that's good enough for me. I honestly expect it's good enough for most of these systems. Again, like Plato says, it is worth believing in, even if it isn't necessarily true. Even if it is ridiculous, why not believe it? What disadvantage is there? What do you really have to lose? Are you real, really so happy pursuing physical pleasure and vice that this is not a sacrifice you're willing to make? I think that's the central question here. The central question of most of these texts, in fact. The difference is only in the emphasis here and there. So next time, we're going to look at a very similar perspective. Although it is a perspective that is divided up among many texts and presented in a very different way and with very different priorities. On the one hand, there's a reason why I include Plato as the first reading in this class. Plato is relentlessly rational, up until the point where he is rationally knocked, where he says that we must abandon rationality and just believe because of the sake of believing. In Hinduism, we're going to see a very different set of priorities. In the Upanishads, we are not going to be encountering this kind of relentless and rigorous belief in rationality. Instead, we are going to be looking to a deeper experience. Wisdom in the raw, so to speak. Um, I am looking forward to reading it with you. Like, I am just incredibly excited to talk about it come next Monday when, in fact, like, we meet and have this conversation. Although I have way less to say about it just because, like, I'm, I'm not nearly as familiar with the traditions. So from here on out, I suspect our class is going to be more conversation than lecture. It is going to be less guidance, and hopefully we're all ready for that. Um, but yeah, next week we start the Upanishads. Um, now our textbook, just as a reminder, I know I've announced it and I know I've talked about it a little bit, but it's probably worth reminding since I imagine most of you will be listening to this lecture over the next weekend or so. Um, don't feel obligated to read the introductory material, just worry about the text. Like it is 50 pages compared to like the 10 to 15 that we've been getting from Plato, but it should read roughly the same speed, I think. Um, since it's all poetry and the details aren't nearly as significant and again a lot of that is you know blank space and and like filler introductory stuff so I'm hoping that it won't be too long but if it proves to be rough we can talk about it in class um, at any rate see what it has to say now that we are departing from the tradition that we are most familiar with and moving into a tradition that we you are probably very unfamiliar with there's the opportunity for some very, fairly serious culture shock. But if anything, I think that's just to our advantage. It will make this text new, the way that these texts are supposed to be new. Shocking in their insight. Um, immediate in their effect. So absolutely read the first three Upanishads, the Isha Upanishad, the... Uh, 
Katha Upanishad and the Brihadrianka or Brihadaranyaka. I'm going to really be butchering these names for the next couple of weeks. Upanishad. Um, and we will talk about them extensively in class on Monday. I look forward to talking about them with you soon.